this is not comfortable, nor should death, disaster, dangerous working conditions, it's at slavery, you know, this isn't comfortable history, but it is part of our history and we can't bury it or continue to bury it. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. I'm your host, Chris Garlock. On July 17, 1944, a group of sailors and civilians were loading ships with ammunition and bombs aboard Chicago, a naval magazine and barracks in the San Francisco Bay Area. Tragically, the ships blew up in a massive explosion that instantly killed 320 workers and injured hundreds more. Most of the dead were African Americans, since racial segregation consigned black soldiers and sailors to manual labor and service, including the dangerous work of transporting munitions. When the surviving workers were ordered back on the job without any additional safety measures or training, 50 refused to return. The resistors, dubbed the Port Chicago 50, were found guilty of disobedience of a lawful order and mutiny and received lengthy sentences and dishonorable discharges. Today, the disaster and its aftermath are memorialized at the Port Chicago Naval Magazine National Memorial, one of a small number of national park sites that commemorate death and dying on the job. Last October, as part of Monumental Labor, a three-part online series that explored the memory of work and working peoples in national parks and national historic landmarks, a distinguished panel discussed tragedy and resistance at Port Chicago Naval Magazine. Dr. Albert Brassard, professor of history at Texas A&M, Tom Leatherman, former superintendent at the Port Chicago Naval Magazine National Memorial, and Dr. Erica Dawes, professor of American studies at the University of Notre Dame, discussed African-American labor in the West, the memorial's role in shaping the memory of the Port Chicago disaster, and how the event should inform commonly told histories of, quote-unquote, America's greatest war. The Monumental Labor Series was organized by Dr. Eleanor Mahoney and Dr. Emma Silverman. Dr. Mahoney has contributed to Labor History Today before, and we appreciate her help bringing this discussion to the podcast as Black History Month wraps up. Thanks also to the National Park Service and to the National Park and Andrew W. Mellon Foundations, which helped make the series possible. Here's Dr. Emma Silverman with Tragedy and Resistance at Port Chicago Naval Magazine. Today's event examines the history and memory of the worst home front disaster of World War II, which took place in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1944. Although Zoom allows us to gather together in this virtual space from around the world, as a scholar working in collaboration with the National Parks, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that the Port Chicago Naval Magazine National Memorial is located on the ancestral homelands of indigenous peoples, including the Karkin Ohlone and Chupkin Bay Miwok peoples. And further, that the participants in this program are joining us from across the occupied lands of the United States. The Port Chicago Naval Magazine National Memorial was constructed to commemorate the tragic loss of life, as well as the brave acts of resistance at Port Chicago. And in 2009, the site became a national park. 
We have three fantastic speakers here tonight to discuss how the Port Chicago disaster relates to the history of African-American labor in the West, as well as the long civil rights movement. The creation of the um, memorial at Port Chicago and its role in interpreting the history of the site, and how that memorial, which marks an event significant to both labor and military history, might inform our shared memory of what's often called the Good War, World War II. I'm going to start with Dr. Albert Broussard, who is moderating tonight's event. Al is professor of history at Texas A&M University, where he has taught since 1985. He has published six books, including Expectations of Equality, A History of Black Westerners, Black San Francisco, The Struggle for Racial Equality in the West, 1900 to 1954, and African American Odyssey, The Stewarts, 1853 to 1963. Al is a former president of the Oral History Association and currently serves as president of the Society for Historians of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. He is also currently writing a history of racial activism and civil rights in the American West from World War II to the present. And next we have uh, Superintendent Tom Leatherman there. Um, Tom has been working for the National Park Service for the last 32 years and has been a superintendent for the last 16. For the past 13 years, he oversaw the operations at four historic sites, including the Port Chicago Naval Magazine National Memorial in the San Francisco East Bay. Our third and final speaker tonight is Dr. Erica Das. Hello. Um, Erica is an art and cultural historian who has written widely on the subjects of memorials, monuments, and public art. She teaches in the Department of American Studies at the U University of Notre Dame, and this year she's a fellow at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Erica is currently working on a new book titled Monuments Are Mortal, Public Art Permanence and Cultural Vandalism. So without further ado, I'm going to turn things over to Al to give some opening remarks and frame tonight's discussion. I'd like to thank Emma and Eleanor for inviting me to participate in this important program, it seems. So World War II changed the entire world and transformed also the nation countless ways. It was truly, really the first global war. And against the backdrop of the Great Depression, which brought tremendous suffering to Black Americans and, to, and many white Americans as well, uh, whites and Blacks literally flocked to the West Coast, as well as the Inland West, to work in the flourishing shipyards and defense industries uh, during the 1940s. And the overwhelming majority of these Black migrants originated uh, from the Deep South. And many settled in the San Francisco Bay Area, but also Los Angeles, Long Beach, Portland, Oregon, and the Seattle, Tacoma uh, area as well, each centers of wartime defense. But it was the San Francisco Bay Area and its surrounding counties that ranked as the largest shipbuilding and ship repair centers in the nation by 1942. And Black Southerners in particular, from the states of Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas and Mississippi, and I include members of my own family as part of this, migrated to the San Francisco Bay Area, literally swelling the numerical ranks, really overwhelming the numerical ranks of existing Black communities. Uh, by 1944, Bay Area Black communities such as San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, and Vallejo were literally dominated by Southern migrants, permanently changing the character 
in the texture of these communities. As black Southern migrants, wartime migrants competed uh, with whites for employment, for housing, which was in critically short supply, and for social space, uh, to be sure our tensions flared up between the races. Uh, various cities were not, we know, legally segregated, although there was clearly de facto segregation as the South had been legally segregated. And the winds of racial change, it slowly began to transform the nation, nation's landscape. We saw this, in fact, during the 1930s, and it continued into the 1940s. Indeed, World War II, in my view, was really a pivotal step in the civil rights movement, which historians have come to understand was a much longer civil rights movement than they had believed earlier. Uh, the historian Richard Nelfilm film called, in fact, World War II, and I still teach this dated piece, he called it the forgotten years of the Black Revolution. He called it Negro Revolution, but who uses that word these days? And I still see it really as the forgotten years. So Blacks across the nation also viewed the war as a catalyst for change, and they expected uh, improvement uh, in race relations. Uh, many Blacks, as well as many white liberals, saw World War II as the opportune time to rid the nation of discrimination completely and to force the government, if possible, to live up to its professed ideals as an egalitarian democratic nation. Uh, one hopeful sign, in fact, had appeared as early as 1940 when the Army promoted the first Black American, uh, Benjamin O. Davis, to the rank of general. Woodrow Wilson had refused to promote uh, an African-American to that rank, retiring Charles Rank uh, with the uh, rank of Colonel. The Pittsburgh Courier, also the nation's largest black newspaper, started the Double V campaign, indicating that blacks and others should fight this war, they said, to rid the nation of Nazism and fascism abroad, as well as racism at home. In other words, democracy, they said, would start at home. African-Americans therefore demanded, and I, I want to emphasize that, demanded to participate equally in the war and to serve in integrated unions. They demanded, for example, to be trained as pilots. And the Army, although hesitant at first, we know established a flight school at Tuskegee Institute, which trained a group of black aviators we know as the Tuskegee Airmen. And by all accounts, the Tuskegee Airmen served with distinction and in March of 2007, all members of Tuskegee Airmen would receive the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest civilian award presented by the U.S. Congress. And in an emotional White House ceremony, Colin Powell, the late Colin Powell, now stated that it was the Tuskegee Airmen who paved the way for his own career. African-Americans also pushed for entrance into the U.S. Marine Corps. And although reluctant, because no Black had ever served in the Marine Corps, the commandant or commander of the Corps agreed to accept 1,000 blacks into the Corps, but they would be trained and housed as a segregated unit at Montfort Point, a section of the Marine Corps base Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. The Montfort Point Marines, as they had come to be known, also served with distinction, and they took, in fact, part of the seizure of Okinawa during World War II. In 2011, President Barack Obama signed a law to award all Mumford Point Marines the Congressional Gold Medal. Black women also insisted that they be permitted to serve in the Women's Army Corps, or WACS, after it was established in 1942. We know that over 150,000 women served in the WACS, including several thousand Black women. But only one Black unit would be assigned to overseas service, a Black postal 
battalion commanded uh, by a black woman by the name of Charity Adams, who would advance to the rank of major, just one of two black women uh, in the WACs promoted to that rank during the war. And imagine my surprise when one day uh, I got a manuscript from Texas A&M University Press uh, from Charity Adams saying that she wanted to publish her story. And I read it with great enthusiasm and A&M published it under the title One Woman's Army in 1989, which I would suggest that everyone uh, uh, viewing this uh, uh, program take a look at. So like black men, black women were trained in segregated facilities. They were housed in segregated quarters. They dined in segregated rooms and they had access to segregated recreation hours separate and apart from white women. Yet they too felt that they were carrying the burden of their entire race on, on their shoulders and they excelled nevertheless. African-Americans also, we know, pushed for equality on the home front, demanding an end to racial discrimination in defense industries. Uh, a. Philip Randolph, the respected black labor leader, in fact, threatened a march on Washington, D.C. in 1941, unless President Franklin Roosevelt halted discrimination in federal defense industries. Interestingly, he also asked uh, Roosevelt to integrate the military, but all of the commanders of the military so, said no, they could not do that uh, at this time. But just one week before the march was scheduled to be held in the nation's capital, President Roosevelt issued an executive order, 8802, which prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, nationality, religion, creed, although not gender, uh, in defense industries. And this executive order did, although it did not halt, clearly all discrimination, to be sure, it did open the door to hundreds of thousands of Blacks to work in the shipyards, the aircraft industries, and wartime factories. And on a personal note, my grandmother, Sarah Hastings, left her job as a domestic in Kansas City, Missouri in 1942 and migrated to the West Coast to work in the California shipyards. And she never looked back. She remained in California the remainder of her life. Uh, a young Black girl that many of you know by the name of Maya Angelou would also leave the oppressive racism of her community in Stamps, Arkansas, and migrate to California where she would become arguably one of the greatest poets and writers in the second half of the 20th century. So the war years represented a time of great hope, a time of rising expectations for African-Americans across the nation. Black leaders also in the West and throughout the country met in conference after conference, expecting the war to bring about the kind of change that they had not seen. They really believed that this war would bring about, if not full equality, certainly a dismantling of most forms of Jim Crow and discrimination. Many black soldiers apparently felt the same way because membership soared in the NAACP, sealed the nation's largest civil rights organization. And many black bases discouraged black soldiers from joining the organization or even reading the crisis, uh, the ma monthly magazine. But emboldened by the larger meaning of the war, uh, one black soldier uh, by the name of Jackie Robinson was arrested and court-martialed in Fort Hood, Texas, for refusing to relinquish his seat to a white person on a bus on the military base. Robinson, we know, exhibited the same fighting spirit that he would show in 1947 when he broke the color line in Major, ba Major League Baseball. 
by fighting this charge, ultimately getting exonerated. But black soldiers and sailors also exhibited heroism in, in many other ways. We know a black messmate by the name of Dory Miller, a native of Waco, Texas, and interestingly, the heavyweight champion on his ship received the Navy Cross for manning a 50 caliber Browning anti-aircraft machine gun during the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor until he ran out of ammunition and was ordered to abandon ship. Miller served as a mess attendant or cook. He had received no prior training to operate a machine gun as black sailors at that time were barred from combat. Yet Chester Nimitz, the commander-in-chief of Pacific Fleet, personally presented the Navy Cross to Miller and lauded his act of bravery. African-American military personnel on occasion collectively protested racism within the military. A lesser-known episode involved 54 Black women who staged a sit-down strike at the Massachusetts General Hospital in 1945 to oppose their assignments as orderlies and KP duty, while white enlisted women in the Women's Army Corps were exempt from KP duty and as orderlies at that hospital and assigned to a wide spectrum of jobs. Although 50 of these women returned to work, four of the women refused and were court-martialed. And only following a long investigation, the Army dropped the charges because they did not want the embarrassment, and this was giving them a tremendous amount of, of bad press. The four women avoided prison sentences. They returned to work, uh, and they uh, uh, stayed. Uh, they completed their terms in the military. It's within this broad context of resistance and militants and civil disobedience that we should examine the Port Chicago 50. On July 17, 1944, at the Port Chicago Naval Base, a massive explosion of undetermined origin destroyed two ships and killed 320 men, including 202 African Americans. Black sailors, or stevedores as they were commonly known, dominated the labor force at this naval facility, and they had long complained to their white superiors and officers that they were assigned not only the most dangerous work details, but that they were assigned to these work details, they said, without proper training. Some black sailors also maintained that only black sailors, they said, were required to load ammunition on ships. So several weeks after this horrific accident at Fort Chicago, officers ordered 328 black stevedores or sailors to again load ammunition at Mare Island in the San Francisco Bay. And one of the uh, clippings caught my eye, I believe it was in the San Francisco Chronicle. It said that these, this, uh, this disobedience uh, from these soldiers had nothing it said to do with the Port Chicago incident. It had everything to do with the Port Chicago incident. So initially all of the men disobeyed the order. Naval uh, officials eventually convinced the majority of the men, however, uh, to come back to work. But 50 of these sailors still refused. After their arrests by military police, a military tribunal uh, tried the men on the charge of mutiny, and all 50 were found guilty. The tribunal sentenced these men to 15 years detention, as well as uh, dishonorable discharges. The 50 
black sailors were convicted in what became the largest and the longest naval trial in U.S. history. And in January 1946, all of the accused men were given clemency and released from prison, but they were never exonerated of their military convictions. The horrific explosion and the subsequent act of the 50 men who refused to return to work raises, to be sure, numerous questions, some of which this panel and those of you who have logged on today, we hope to explore. I'd like to turn it over to my fellow panelist, Tom Leatherman. Thanks, Al. Thanks also to Emma and Eleanor for um, for coordinating this panel. One important note is that although the memorial was established in 1992 to honor the men killed in July 17, 1944, the greater story of civil rights, segregation, and social justice represented by the site and its stories was an important factor and rationale for the establishment of the site as a full unit of the National Park Service. This new regional park was recently named Thurgood Marshall Regional Park, home of the Port Chicago 50, in recognition of Thurgood Marshall's involvement in the mutiny trial and his advocacy for the rights of the accused sailors. The NPS and the East Bay Regional Park District are now working to establish a visitor center over the next 10 years. Our hope is that this new visitor center will provide greater access to the story and serve as a space for a dialogue around segregation, civil rights, and the full story and history of Port Chicago disaster, which is which encompasses which can only be uh, fully realized when we know and share the complete history, and we really can't honor the sailors who are listed on the memorial plaques if we don't share that entire history. So it's my, um, I guess it's my time to turn this over to Erica for the next presentation. I'd like to begin with a few remarks about, about labor and labor memorials, um, and then war and war memorials as we consider the changed and changing nature of commemoration um, in the United States today. The Port Chicago Naval Magazine National Memorial is one of few memorials in the United States that commemorate sites of labor. People then think about, all right, what National Park Service sites have I been to that specifically commemorate or, or bring up issues pertaining to work and pertaining to labor. This site is also one of the very few that commemorates labor sites marked by danger, disaster, and death, specifically the death of 320 enlisted men, most of them African-American sailors who were killed, as we've heard, when cargo ships being loaded with munitions exploded on July 17, 1944. This was the worst disaster of World War II on the U.S. home front and was for many decades buried in official U.S. history. Note the text on the top left of this photograph, which reads, official photograph not to be released for publication. And these photographs were only really released um, in the early 1970s. And as Tom mentioned, um, you know, the site has only become more and more 
visible or present in American memory and American history in recent decades. So today, the site um, and its significance in U.S. history are commemorated at the Port Chicago National Memorial. Labor and a certain reverence for work has played a major role throughout American history in shaping both how we think of ourselves and our, and our national identity. Uh, the Black sailors in the ordnance battalions at the Port Chicago Naval Depot who labored in eight-hour, round-the-clock shifts, 365 days a year, unloading boxcars, which were shipped in from Arizona, Nevada, and other parts of the country full of munitions, and then moving that ordinance by hand onto carts that they walked or drove to nearby piers, and there were three piers at the time, where they loaded um, this material onto cargo holds of ships. These men described themselves as workers. From the founding of the Republic in the late 18th century to today, Americans have maintained and are encouraged to maintain an abiding faith in the work ethic. Work is how we define ourselves. Think about how uh, we define ourselves uh, at parties. It's a commonplace assumption that what we do um, as Americans is most often the most outstanding indicator of who we are. Um, maybe the first question we might ask someone at a, you know, you just meet at a party is, uh, or another kind of social gathering is, what do you do? Meaning, what is your job? What do you do for work? Further, the meaning of work as this crucial or moral link between individuals and public life is so strong that it can almost be considered a calling that ties Americans to the larger national community that is the United States. Yet public memorials and public monuments focused on labor and laborers are relatively rare, which is the focus of today's webinar on monumental labor and today's discussion in particular on the Port Chicago National Memorial. And this map here helps to sort of explain uh, where it is located. That's because the largest body or genre of memorials commissioned in the United States are actually war memorials, um, such as the National World War II Memorial, which was dedicated on the National Mall in the nation's capital in 2004. In recent decades, in fact, World War II has been extensively commemorated in new memorials and new museums. Some of you may have had the opportunity to visit the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historic Park in nearby Richmond, California. This was dedicated in 2000. Um, an interesting park, which in this memorial here replicates in physical form the kinds of ships that the tens of thousands of workers built right in that port and then were shipped out to um, primarily the Pacific Theater. Um, some of you may have had the opportunity to, vi to visit the National D-Day Memorial in Bedford, Virginia. This was dedicated in 2001. Likewise, multiple U.S. cities and states have dedicated memorials to World War II veterans, such as this one in Pierre, South Dakota. Although World War II ended 76 years ago, 
its historical memory as the Good War continues to broadly circulate. And today's surge of World War II commemoration stems from emotional states. And these emotional states uh, include gratitude and also shame from expressions of thanks and gratitude to those Americans who gave their lives to defend their country during wartime, to feelings of shame about how many of those Americans were treated because of national policies and practices of racial discrimination. And that includes the enlisted men, the black sailors at Port Chicago. War, as historian Michael Sherry observed, and to sort of expand on um, the comments that Al provided, war is broadly perceived as, quote, the best way to mobilize Americans and to capture their problems and conflicts. War and work are both key to American understandings of purpose and identity. Yet war memorials are far more prevalent than any other kind of memorials, including labor memorials. Mythologized as patriotism, explained as an economic asset, and desired for its explicit, stimulating, and emotionally intense aspects, war binds Americans in shared understandings of the nation's origins, think of the Revolutionary War and its futures. These understandings of war are extensive and inclusive. In recent decades, scores of new war memorials that pay tribute to African-American, Native American, and Asian-American soldiers, as well as disabled American veterans and women soldiers have been dedicated throughout the United States. These memorials reaffirm the nation's prevalent culture of militarism, coaching Americans about concepts of citizenship, patriotism, civic responsibility, and unity as they simultaneously whet appetites for future martial adventures. The half-acre site that is the Port Chicago National Memorial, which we see here, is modest, as Tom explained. It features text panels, granite markers listing the names of the dead, a low round bench, a few carefully posed ammo shells over on the right, and a U.S. flag. Nearby, as we saw, are a few of the revetments where the boxcars were originally parked. The site was dedicated in 1994, the same year that the National Park Service declared that sites of shame should be included in the park system to prevent a complete picture of our national history. These sites in recent decade um, include the President's House in Philadelphia. The Park Service has assumed, I think, a leadership role in recent decades in addressing issues of racial injustice in the United States, dedicating memorials and historic sites um, that reckon with subjects such as slavery here at the President's House, um, which is an ex sort of a recovery of the presidential house uh, where America's first two presidents lived before um, the White House was complete in Washington, D.C. And as you can see, it's sort of an extension of the Liberty Center, um, which houses the Liberty Bell. In the background, you see Independence Hall. This is the dedication of the site in 2010. Another site of shame 
Um, it's the Little Rock Central High School, which in 1957 was at the epicenter of public school integration following the Supreme Court's landmark Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. of the good war frames a sign of disaster as a tribute to the men who worked and died there. And I think it's very important that one of the text panels explicitly lays out dangerous work. Memorial panels and ranger talks explain how dangerous the work was at this site and who in particular was at risk in danger. They also highlight the role, as Al explained, the dissent, role of dissent and refusal in the national quest for racial justice and for civil rights, explaining how the Port Chicago 50 were a touchstone for desegregation in the military. This is further taken up by the Friends of Chicago, a Friends of, Friends of Port Chicago National Memorial, um, a group, as uh, Tom explained, that that really aspire to tell the human rights story of Port Chicago in public programming and in annual events. This work is what we might call emotional labor, a practice that includes recognizing the systemic racism that created the disaster at Port Chicago and is also tasked with reckoning with its effects in terms of how we think about ourselves as a nation. Port Chicago's National Memorial is both a labor memorial and a war memorial. It's also a site where audiences are encouraged, are encouraged, I think, encouraged, I think, to reckon with the fraught terms of both of these major sources, labor and work, work labor, work, and war, uh, these major sources of American self and national identity. While the 1944 disaster certainly generated change in the U.S. military, exposing its systemic racism and pushing for its eventual desegregation, the memorial also speaks to disaster, tragedy, and socially shared understandings of shame. Psychiatrist Aaron Lazar observed in his book On Apology, quote, Justice people take pride in things for which they have no responsibility, such as famous ancestors and great accomplishments of their nation. So too must these people accept the shame of their nations when one's country has not measured up. This accountability is what we mean when we speak of having a national identity. Adding shame to American understandings of World War II, the supposed good war, qualifies then assumptions about what work and war actually mean in the United States and to whom throughout the course of American history. We'll be back with part two of Tragedy and Resistance at Port Chicago Naval Magazine in just a moment. First, though, here's Labor History in Two, with the story of the 1937 Woolworth sit-down. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day with whistles blowing, the call to strike 
could be heard through the aisles of Woolworth in downtown Detroit. 108 saleswomen walked away from their workstations and cash registers. The eight-day sit-down had begun. The women saw from the experience in Flint that sit-down strikes were effective. They evicted management, barricaded the doors, and found 200 or so customers still inside the store wanting to join them. The strikers issued their demands. A 10 cent an hour raise, an eight hour workday, union recognition and a union hiring hall, free uniforms and laundering, and more. Kresge department stores immediately gave their workers a raise in order to prevent similar stoppages. The striking women at Woolworth made themselves comfortable and the sit-down soon spread to a second store. Leaders from local 705 of the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees Union threatened a nationwide strike if demands were not met. Union cooks provided meals and union musicians provided entertainment. Hotel workers from across the city picketed in front of the store in a show of solidarity. After seven days, Woolworth's management caved and agreed to most of the strikers' demands. High turnover in the workforce would undo contract gains at area Woolworth stores soon after the sit-down. But the victory electrified retail workers across the country. The sit-down spread to retailers in St. Louis, New York, San Francisco, Minnesota, and Washington. In three strikes, miners, musicians, sales girls, and the fighting spirit of labor's last century, Dana Frank notes that, quote, over 60 years later, unions today in department stores all over the country owe their existence in part to the Woolworth strike. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Back now with part two of Tragedy and Resistance at Port Chicago Naval Magazine here on Labor History Today. So Tom and Erica, can you discuss briefly some of the challenges in selecting what historical events are worthy of memorializing? In other words, who gets in and who gets excluded? I think that's a great question. Um, and I think it really speaks to uh, the constantly changing nature, not just of commemoration, but of American history itself. We live in constantly changing historical times. History is not fixed. Um, historical facts are, but you know, interpretations are not fixed. Um, and we are, as Americans, I think are, are always interested in and encouraged to include um, more and more into the, the great American story. That accounts certainly for our inclusion of sites of shame um, and disaster, not simply so that we can go to these sites and, and think about, oh, this is terrible, so many people died here. But I think importantly, so that we recognize why those folks died there um, and hopefully so that other people won't die in similarly dangerous labored conditions. Um, in other words, I think history is also, um, you know, it's a process of learning. Um, it's certainly a tool for, for future experiences and future understandings. In relation to the National Park designation and how we memorialize these places, I think, you know, the answer is, is really, if you look at the history of the designations, and Port Chicago is a perfect example, it would not be here if, if it weren't for the advocacy of her friends of Port Chicago, individuals who had a personal connection, who saw the significance and raised that issue to their congressperson and to the National Park Service to advocate for its preservation. And I think if you look at the history of sites of shame in particular, I think you will find that 
they were established through the efforts of these individuals who were related to the stories of those sites who brought that to the attention that to saw the need for it to be recognized and shared. And then the National Park Service became the entity uh, to do that. Well, I have a question that either one of you could tackle. Did tragic events uh, like the Port Chicago explosion bring about change in either race relations or even the more humane way of treating black sailors? I, I would like to believe that it did, but I, I think it's just a shame that it had to happen this way. Um, I mean, what a horrible way to create social justice in this country. Um, but yeah, I think that um, the Port Chicago 50 are, are incredibly important in terms of understanding how rebellion and dissent shape um, the country's futures in terms of the constant pursuit for, for racial justice um, and leading to Black Lives Matter today. Black sailors were told to go back to work very quickly. White sailors, interestingly, were given 30-day leave. Black sailors were not. Um, and there were protests, particularly because the conditions, uh, which included speed-ups and sort of competitions. How fast can your battalion get that ordinance on those ships? I mean, this is dangerous. Um, and it led to disaster. Those conditions didn't change. And sailors said, no, we're not going to repeat those kinds of mistakes. I would say, you know, the, the events of Port Chicago, for sure, I think directly led to the desegregation of the Navy almost immediately after the war. A colleague of mine at Rosie the Riveter um, used to love to say, and still says, history is this sort of ever sort of evolving we, we have to reinvent our democracy, right? It's ever evolving and changing. But, but she says that as, as we go through time, we, we can look back and see, yes, we have changed because the military is now desegregated, right? But have we realized full equality within the armed forces today? It's, it's different than it was in World War II, but are we where we want to be? And do we need to still work towards more um, more of an, an equal basis. So I think Betty Soskin, who's our, our hundred year old ranger, um, at least to love to reflect on, yes, since, since I was working in the shipyards in Richmond, things have changed, but we still have work to do. Maria comments that she thinks of Manzanar National Historic uh, Site as a site of shame. But that title could also apply to every location where there was enslaved labor, um, thinking of plantations, but of course, of many other sites. Do you have any suggestions on how the National Park Service may be able to move forward and unveil the stories of shame that exist in current NBS sites so versus making new ones? Rosie, the Riveter is maybe a, a good example of a place where, you know, on, on the surface, it seems like a story about women in the workforce. When you look more broadly at the stories we're telling at that part, you'll realize that it's stories about LGBTQ workers on the home front, um, African-American workers on the home front, uh, the story of Japanese-Americans during World War II, which is a story of incarceration. And so there's lots of stories to be told at any number of sites, um, some of them new, some of them old. And I think as we begin to include more of those narratives, and I think the process for that is, you know, finding someone at the park who's interested in, in engaging in that dialogue and then doing the research to figure out how to bring those stories to life. How long does the arc of equality need to bend before justice is seen for the Port Chicago 50 
Any updates on exoneration? So there have been some um, movements over the years on exoneration, but the first effort, I guess, was an offer to pardon, actually by the Clinton administration, they offered to pardon uh, the sailors, uh, the, the sailors who were still alive at the time. Um, one person actually ended up taking that pardon, but um, Freddie Meeks, but um, the others declined because they, you know, a pardon means that, you, you know, you were guilty, but you're, we're letting you off. Exoneration means you're you're basically saying that you never did anything wrong, and so there there have been continued efforts to exonerate the sailors and the uh, actually Congressman Mark Deselny, the current congressman over the district, as well as uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee in the Bay Area, have just recently introduced legislation um, to exonerate the sailors. But um, uh, a few years ago. Um, there was legislation that was passed by Congress sort of looking into the exoneration and actually called for them to evaluate and basically encourage them uh, to exonerate the sailors. So that, so the subsequent recent legislation is, is sort of building off that, that legislation that passed um, that actually called for the reevaluation of, of their convictions. So I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts about um, what it means that the story was forgotten for so long and that it's being recovered now and how that intervenes in um, either our understandings of the um, long African-American civil rights movement, um, what that means for the visitors center that's being constructed, and also what that means for how we think about the commemorative landscape of um, both labor monuments and uh, war memorials. I'll start because I had almost the identical question for, for Tom and Erica, and that was how his history remembered these men and their sacrifices. And I think Erica made it uh, very clear that uh, labor uh, laborers generally don't get remembered much at all at these kind of sites. And I think it also clashes with the sort of master narrative of the United States, uh, also uh, World War II being the so-called good war. We, we tend to put these kind of episodes, uh, if we talk about them at all, there's sort of a, a minor footnote. And I think people, quite frankly, much like the teaching of slavery, as someone said I, I, uh, in, in the chat, it, it took a very long time for the National Park Service to either begin interpreting uh, uh, slavery or, on these kinds of sites. So these kinds of discussions are often painful. Uh, I recall a conversation with the curator at, uh, at Monticello, and he said people generally don't want to hear about slavery. And he told me this 20, 30 years ago, and yet it's one of the most popular tours now at that particular plantation. So it, it still makes people uncomfortable to, to talk about these kinds of things. And of course, the political atmosphere changes, as we know, uh, from, from time to time. And, and so this might not even be a good time to talk about these kinds these kind of events, particularly when there's a, a sector of the, of, of the public, the politicians who are pushing so-called patriotic history, right? So this, this is directly contrary to that, to that narrative, I would say. Where do we come up with the idea that history is supposed to be comfortable? You know, this, this, this is not comfortable, nor should death, disaster, dangerous working conditions at slavery earlier, that, you know, this isn't comfortable history, um, but it is part of our history. Um, and we can't bury it or continue to bury it. And I think that that, I don't, and I'm, I'm not sure, Emma, the word is forgotten so much as buried, because you can bet that Port Chicago was not forgotten 
um, uh, you know, in the families and the survivors, it was buried by, by those who simply didn't want to admit or deal with the conditions that, um, that generated the disaster in the first place. Um, so, it, you know, it, it starts to come out when those moments in American history, and I think we're living one now, where we're looking at our past and thinking about what have been the points of rebellion and dissent um, that have created um, progress, um, change, um, you know, the constant search for that more perfect union. And when are those episodes and events? And this is certainly um, the aftermath of one of them. How did the African-American community in the Bay Area respond to the events at Port Chicago? The NAACP, the San Francisco NAACP, was quite active uh, during World War II. Uh, they, they got a new president by the name of Joseph James, who primarily challenged discrimination. He himself was a shipyard worker. And his main campaign was uh, established, excuse me, challenging discrimination in auxiliary unions, which uh, black workers were required to join, which had almost no rights uh, and could, they could be fired for any any reason. And I just want to clarify that the officers who ordered the speed ups were white. So there's a um, sort of racial divide and the management and the workers, um, if we're thinking about this in labor context, in terms of who's deciding how quickly what uh, the black workers should be loading the munitions onto the ships. What is the usefulness of invoking shame? Renee Brown's work points to the detrimental impact of shame and talks about how shame is not a social justice tool. How can the sites tell the stories that hold the country accountable without using the lens of shame? So I've taught the Port Chicago explosion for 30, 35 years. I integrated as part of my discussion to teach a two-semester sequence in Black history during World War II. And I don't think of it as, as a site of shame. I think of it as an act of resistance and social justice and civil disobedience. Uh, but I do talk about how, in my view, uh, Black sailors were made expendable. You know, the lack of training, the fact that the familiar tropes, the same sort of tropes that were used for Black women when they staged their sit-down strike at the Massachusetts hospital, they're less intelligent. Uh, you can't put them in other sorts of jobs. Training's going to be waste of, uh, a waste of time. Uh, should that make people feel comfortable? Well, I really hope it does, quite frankly. Uh, should it put them out of their comfort zone, bring them? Yeah, I really hope it does. And, and if, if it doesn't, I don't think I'm doing my job as historian. Uh, and so, again, I don't see it as shame writ large as, as sort of the sort of the the thesis of it. I see it as sort of really the kind of resistance that black people uh, from time to time. And this war is a good example. They felt emboldened that they could disobey. Right. And I think we all agreed, at least as a panel, that there were some some. Some changes that came about as a result of this. And in a sense, the shame is the spark that pushes people to, um, you know, quest that more perfect union that we are told we um, are aspirational about. It isn't meant to be constant shame. It is meant to be a moment of this was a shameful act. Um, committed in a particular moment. Let's make sure we don't do this again. How do we remedy this? Um, I mean, I think we live in a nation where we believe that um, bad things can be um, not forgotten, can be corrected, um, not repeated, that we can get to better places. Um, you said spark, I'd say catalyst, but I think we're thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
as opposed to just going home and turning on the television, getting a glass of white wine and kicking back, right? Yeah, and just like, you know what an awful what 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 an awful event, right? I mean, right. People really do get moved by these kinds of things, and many people get moved to action, right? Right. I mean, what creates resistance? What creates dissent? Um, it isn't just anger. Um, it it it. There can be multiple emotional responses, and I think this is one of them. I want to thank Al, Tom, and Erica for presenting and the National Park Service staff, including Trevor and Virginia, as well as my co-organizer, Eleanor, for all their behind-the-scenes work on the planning, chat, Q&A, and technology. This program was made possible by the National Park Service, in part by a grant through the National Park Foundation and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and we thank them for their support. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1939. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that sit-down strikes were illegal. If you're a regular listener of Labor History in Two, last month you may have heard how sit-down strikes had become an important tactic for workers in the 1930s. By sitting down on the job and occupying a factory, workers could force the bosses to recognize the legal right of workers to unionize. In 1936, the workers at the Fan Steel Metallurgical Corporation plant in North Chicago were fed up with management and decided they wanted to form a union. In an attempt to weaken support and intimidate workers, the company bosses sent their spies to union meetings and they refused to negotiate. Frustrated with these tactics, 95 workers seized control of two of the company's buildings and sat down. Strike-breaking police attempted to dislodge the workers with tear gas, but the workers held fast and stayed in the building for more than a week until police chased them out. 37 workers were convicted on criminal charges, although there had been no damage to the factory property. The striking workers were fired and replaced by the company. The workers took their case to the National Labor Review Board, claiming that Fan Steel had violated the workers' rights to unionize as guaranteed under the National Labor Relations Act. They argued the sit-down strikers should get their jobs back. The board ultimately found in favor of the workers. Appeals by the company brought the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court ruled the sit-down strikers were out of bounds, and their actions amounted to an illegal usurpation of private property, thus good cause to fire the workers. With this one ruling, the court undercut one of the most powerful tactics workers had available to them, which helped build the modern labor movement in the United States. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That'll really help folks to find the show. Labor History and Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. The Monumental Labor Series was organized by Dr. Eleanor Mahoney and Dr. Emma Silverman. Dr. Mahoney has contributed to Labor History Today before, and we appreciate her help bringing this discussion to the podcast as Black History Month wraps up. Thanks also to the National Park Service and to the National Park and Andrew W. Mellon Foundations, which helped make the series possible. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes 
Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history and see you next time.